Good morning. Today's scripture is from 2 Peter 1, 16 through 21. For we did not follow cleverly devised myths when we made known to you the power and coming of our Lord Jesus Christ, but we were eyewitnesses of his majesty. For when he received honor and glory from God the Father, and the voice was borne to him from the majestic glory, this is my beloved Son, with whom I am well pleased. We ourselves heard this very voice born from heaven, for we were with him on the holy mountain. And we have the prophetic word more fully confirmed, to which you will do well to pay attention, as to a lamp shining in a dark place, until the day dawns and the morning star rises in your hearts. Knowing this, first of all, that no prophecy of Scripture comes from someone's own interpretation. For no prophecy was ever produced by the will of man, but men spoke from God as they were carried along by the Holy Spirit. Anybody who hears these words of mine and does them is like a wise person who builds their house on the rock. And the winds come up and the storm comes down and that house stands because it's built on the rock. But to the person who hears his words and does not do them, that person is like the fool who built their house on the sand. And when the wind came up and the waters of the storm came down, that house was destroyed. And great was the fall of that person. See, Jesus understands that his words are worth building your life on. And what we talked about last week, I just loved 2 Peter so much. We're not doing a series in 2 Peter. I just loved it so much, I decided we'll stay in it for another week. But what we talked about last week is what is, it, what, is, what is worth building your life on? What kind of person do you want to be in 2022? What kind of life following Christ are you going to have? And so I thought, if Jesus says his words are worth building your life on, then let's talk about five truths that are worth staking everything on. And the first one this week is, the Bible is God's word. If you want to build your life on something sure, build it on God's word, which is the Bible. Now, over the next few weeks, we're going to have four more of these, and I'll give you a preview of, of what they're going to be. These are not the only five things worth building your life on, but this is a great summary of what Jesus says. This is the sturdy foundation for your life. The Bible is God's word. Your sins have been forgiven. Jesus is coming again. God hears your prayers, and your story matters. Those are things worth staking everything on in your life. In 1953... These words were spoken to one of the most famous people in the world. We present you with this book, the most valuable thing this world affords. Here is wisdom. This is the royal law. These are the lively oracles of God. That was said at the coronation of Elizabeth II in 1953. And it was reiterated again at her 60th anniversary. And I hope that it's reiterated again at her 70th anniversary. And what they knew at that point, the Archbishop of Canterbury stood there at the coronation of a monarch and said, here's what you really need. The living word of God. See, what they understood was the word of God is not just bound to spiritual matters. As in, if you want to be a good Christian then you should read this book. What they realized is, for anything that you endeavor to do, this is your starting place. 
If you want to rule well, if you want to serve well, if you want to lead a great family, if you want to be a great coworker, you need to base your life on what they call the lively oracles of God. The Bible actually makes even greater claims about itself than what that quote would have you believe. The Bible says some pretty astounding things about itself. Probably the most famous verse on Scripture is 2 Timothy 3.16. And I want to focus on just the first part of this for a moment. Paul is writing to Timothy, who's a younger pastor, and he says to him, All Scripture is breathed out by God and is profitable for teaching, for reproof, for correction, and for training in righteousness, that the person of God might be complete, equipped for every good work. See, this word God-breathed is a word that Paul made up. He just put two words together, like we did, God-breathed, to express what the Bible says about itself, which is, if you read this book, you're hearing from God. It's the exact same as if God spoke audibly and we heard him. That's what happens when you read this book. I've heard pastors say it this way. If you want to hear God speak, read your Bible out loud. Because these are the words of God. Every word of it is breathed out by God. When you look at Scripture, there's only two things that have God's breath in them like that. The Bible and you. Do you remember this? In the beginning, God speaks and the universe is created, but then he takes some dirt and he puts it together in the form of a man and then he breathes his spirit into man. That's what animates us. So actually, we have a connection to the word of God in that his breath is in the words of scripture and his breath is in us. Sometimes we talk about this as his spirit is in both parties, and that's why there's such an amazing connection when you base your life on the Word. It's exactly how you were created to live. So the implications of this are incredible. What does it look like if you build your life on God's inspired, God-breathed Word? And the first implication is that God's Word is true. Now, this might sound like a total duh statement. You're like, I didn't have to come to church this morning to realize that God's word is true. But I just want to point out to you for a moment, true truth is a very tricky word in 2021. So I just want to spend a minute talking about what the word true actually means. Because we live in a world where the phrase, live your truth, has become a life motto. Or what's true for you is not true for me. Or I'm living out what I think is true, but I wouldn't want to impose what is true for you. Okay, we use this word in a way that actually doesn't mean anything close to the word truth. And uh, I want to point out that people do this only in certain areas of their life, right? This is true in spiritual or moral things, but people are not tossing around live your truth like around the principle of gravity, for example. No one is saying that. Or like in terms of their taxes, Right? We're all pretty convinced that people at the IRS are not relativists. It is not a live-your-truth world. But when it comes to spiritual things, most of us have a little catch in our spirit if I say something like, there is no true for me and true for you. There is one truth, and it's true regardless of whether you believe it. Most of us probably, just from living in the world, would say, that's a little harsh. Or that, that seems a little dogmatic. So how can we be so confident as to say, this is true for everyone, regardless of whether they believe it or not. How could we possibly say that? 
Well, that's exactly what Peter is proving to a group of people who were just as skeptical as we are 2,000 years ago. See, Peter is writing this to churches that are in the midst of a culture that isn't even remotely Christian. And whatever you think about our culture, whether we still have Christianity as a core, we're post-Christian or we're anti-Christian, this wasn't even ever Christian, didn't want anything to do with Christians. The very small minority were Christians, and Peter's saying, as a Christian, you can trust that this is true for everybody. So why does he say that, and how does he back it up? Well, he gives two witnesses in this passage. Look back at verse 16. It says, we did not follow cleverly devised myths. That was a charge that many people were making. These are just, these are myths, but they just happen to resonate with people, right? That hasn't really gone away in 2,000 years. These, these stories are uh, eternal truths in that they resonate with us, but they may not have actually happened. Peter's saying, no, no, no. We didn't follow myths when we made known to you the power and coming of our Lord Jesus. We were eyewitnesses to his majesty. And then later he says, and, and also in verse 19, we have the prophetic word, the word of the prophets, which is more fully confirmed even than our eyewitness testimony. So what's Peter doing here? Well, if you spend any time in the Old Testament law, you remember that for something to be true among the Israelites, you needed to have two witnesses. Right? So in a court of law, in terms of judgments, in terms of uh, vouching for someone, you needed to have two witnesses. And this is actually still true in the New Testament. We see that, for example, in 1 Timothy chapter 5, don't admit a charge against an elder unless you have two witnesses. This is the same principle. Right? And we, some of this principle is embodied in our law in America today. We want multiple attestations to things that are true. And so Peter says, okay, I'll give you two witnesses. Here's the first one. We saw it. We saw it. Peter's writing as somebody who is an eyewitness. He's saying, I saw it with my very own eyes. And the other scripture writers do this too. Do you remember how the first letter of John starts? That which we have heard, which we have seen with our eyes, which we have touched with our hands concerning the words of life. Paul does this too in 1 Corinthians chapter 15. He says, you know, he appeared to me, but he also appeared to all these other people, a dozen people here, there, at one time hundreds of people, as if to imply, and these people are still alive, just ask them. They saw this. The gospel is a historical fact. Jesus came, he lived, he did exactly what the scripture said he was going to do, and he rose from the dead. And what Peter's saying is, and we are eyewitnesses to this. We saw his glory. Now, Peter picks a story that is really kind of an interesting choice if you're going to say we were eyewitnesses. If it were me, I probably would have picked the resurrection. I'd say, we're eyewitnesses, we saw him, he was risen, it was incredible, believe me. That's not what Peter does. He says, we saw him because we received honor and glory from God the Father and the voice born to him by the majestic glory saying, this is my beloved son with whom I am well pleased. And we ourselves heard this voice born from heaven, for we were with him on the mountain. Okay, does anybody know what story this is talking about? This is the transfiguration. Okay, this is in all of the gospels. This is where Jesus takes a couple of the disciples and he goes up on the mountain and all of a sudden his, he is radiating with glory. It says he is white, he is shining, he is majestic, and all of a sudden two people appear next to him, Moses and Elijah. 
And it says they're talking about his coming departure. Right, we, I preached on this in the summer from the Psalms, that that word there is his coming exodus. Right? It's a new exodus for everyone who believes, being taken away from bondage and being set free into the land that God has given. And so what Peter's saying is, we saw it. We saw him on the mountain. And the reason he brings up that story is because, number one, that story is the glimpse that you get in the Gospels of what Jesus will look like when he returns. There's only one time in Scripture before the resurrection that you see Jesus as a glorious, majestic king. Right? His time on earth was mostly characterized by being a servant by washing the feet of his disciples, by being betrayed, by having nowhere to lay his head, not being a king in the earthly sense. But here on the mountain for this one moment, he is radiant. He is glorious like he's going to be for all of eternity. And Peter says, we've already seen that. We've gotten the preview. We know what it's going to look like when he comes back. And secondly, because God's own voice validates him. Think about the times that God speaks during Jesus' life. At his birth, at his baptism, at the Mount of Transfiguration. This is my son. I love him. Listen to him. That's what he says in every place. Listen to what he says. What God is saying is, what he says, I say. His words have the same weight as my word. And Peter says, we saw it. We heard it. We know that we can trust Christ because the voice of God thundered from heaven and said, this is my son. He is my authorized speaker in the world. Now, Peter would go on, like the other apostles, to die for what he saw. He leveraged his whole life on what he saw. He was an eyewitness that was faithful to the very end. And what we see throughout Christian history is torture is not enough, death is not enough, ostracism is not enough. People that have seen and tasted will go to their death proclaiming, I believe in the one who raises the dead. I was reading a book this summer about Watergate, and Kirk suggested this quote to me, so I looked it up. This is Chuck Colson, who was part of the Nixon administration, became a Christian, went to prison, started the biggest prison ministry in the world, had a phenomenal career ministering to, serving, evangelizing. Said this, I know the resurrection is a fact, and Watergate proved it to me. How? Because 12 men testified that they had seen Jesus raised from the dead and then proclaimed that truth for 40 years, never once denying it. Everyone was beaten, tortured, stoned, put into prison. They would not have endured it if it weren't true. Watergate embroiled 12 of the most powerful men in the world, and they couldn't keep a lie for three weeks. You're telling me 12 apostles could keep a lie for 40 years? Absolutely impossible. Peter's willing to stake his entire life on what he saw. So he says to these churches, I don't want you to think that we were following hearsay when we testify to you what we saw. Now he brings another set of witnesses too. So you have the eyewitness of the apostles and people that saw Jesus risen from the dead, saw him on the mountain. But then secondly, he says, and we have an even more confirmed witness, and that is the prophets who testified to who Jesus was and what he was doing. Now, Peter's already mentioned these prophets in this letter. If you'll go back in chapter 1, uh, actually in the previous letter, chapter 1 of First Peter, 
he talks about these prophets, and he says in verse 10, concerning this salvation, the prophets who prophesied about the grace that was to be yours searched and inquired carefully, inquiring what person or time the Spirit of Christ in them was indicating when he predicted the sufferings of Christ and the subsequent glories. What Peter's calling our attention to is how long and how many people had talked about what happened in Christ. And if you go through your Old Testament, it's really pretty amazing how many times the suffering of Christ and his subsequent glory is described. This year, around Easter, we talked about Psalm 22, which is a psalm that's written almost a thousand years before Jesus, but it describes in amazing detail what happened to Jesus on the cross. Even to the extent that his bones are out of joint, even to the extent that he's thirsty, even that people have surrounded him and mocked him. That's, Peter says, the Spirit speaking through David in that case to confirm what was going to happen in Christ. And I could go on for a long time talking about this because there are so many prophecies. But I think what Peter's talking about is a specific set of things. Think about the story in Luke 24. Jesus is risen from the dead, and there's these two guys who are walking to a town called Emmaus. And all of a sudden, a third person appears with them that they don't recognize, and he asks them what they're talking about. And they're like, I mean, have you not heard Jesus crucified, died? They say that he's risen from the dead. And he's like, tell me about that. And they start telling him about it, and uh, they're not sure exactly what's happened. And so Jesus reveals himself and says, was it not necessary that the Christ should suffer and enter into his glory? And then it says, and beginning with Moses and all the prophets, he interpreted to them in all the scriptures things concerning himself. See, Jesus is claiming to those two people then and to us now that the entire Bible has a focal point. All the prophets, all of the Bible points towards an event that was fulfilled in Jesus' life. Peter even uses the same phrase that Luke uses in that description in 1 Peter 1, the sufferings of Christ and the subsequent glories. God's word, the two witnesses are pointing towards the fact that Jesus really did suffer. He really did die, and he really did rise from the dead. So Peter says, I've got two witnesses for you to the truth of what we are proclaiming. Eyewitnesses that saw him and prophets that prophesied to him through God's Spirit. So the Bible is true. But I want to make one more observation here. What, how do we mean that it is true? The Bible doesn't say everything about everything. And if you expect it to, that's where a lot of us probably have run into trouble before. Well, if the Bible is true, then why doesn't it tell me about this? Or if the Bible is true in that it encompasses everything, then why am I having such a hard time figuring this out? The Bible is true in such a way that everything it says is true, and it says something about everything, but it doesn't say everything about everything. The Bible is true in that everything it speaks to is true. Every word, Jesus says, even down to every iota, which is a small letter, the Bible is true. But you've got to understand that the Bible is more like a starting place for truth. The things that it speaks to then prepare us to 
apply wisdom to situations that are new to us. For example, the Bible doesn't actually say anything about social media, but that doesn't mean that God didn't see social media coming. It just means that he gave us principles to apply to that situation. I was taking a group to camp. Uh, I think it was a youth group when I was a youth pastor. We are going to camp, and at the camp, the theme verse for the camp, I'm going to read it to you, was in Jeremiah 33, 3. This was like the marquee verse for the entire week. They sent it out beforehand, and they said, hey, prepare your kids and your leaders. We're going to be talking about this verse the entire week. And Jeremiah 33, 3 says, Call to me, and I will answer you, and I will tell you great and hidden things that you have not known. And we thought, ooh, that's cool. That's going to be a great camp week verse. And so, you know, being the youth pastor I was, I wanted to prepare my kids and my leaders well for that verse. And so I had asked this volunteer, I said, okay, the week before we go to camp, let's get the kids ready. I want you to just take this passage and read it in its context so that we can be ready for it. So we're at our youth thing, and this volunteer is up there, and they start reading, and they say, call to me, and I will answer you, and I will tell you great and hidden things that have not been known. Everybody's like, oh, awesome. For thus says the Lord God, the God of Israel, this is verse 4, concerning the houses of this city and the houses of the kings of Judah that were torn down to make a defense against the siege mounds and against the sword, they are coming in to fight against the Chaldeans and fill them with the dead bodies of men who, and I just looked and they were looking at me like, should I keep reading this or not? This got PG-13 really fast. And I was able to explain to the kids in kind of an impromptu message, the context always matters. These secret things that are going to be told are not the great and wonderful, amazing things. The secret things that we're going to be told to them is mass slaughter. Okay? This book is written when Israel is about to be conquered. And so I want to remind you that the Bible is true in all that it says. The context of Scripture is always true. But don't mistake that for thinking, if you pluck out a few words of Scripture and apply them to a specific moment, that that is the way that the Bible is true. That's actually a way to be disappointed in the Bible. Because disappointment spiritually always comes from thinking that God has promised something that he hasn't. Thinking that God has promised something that he hasn't. God will always fulfill the promises that he makes. But he's not on the hook for fulfilling promises that you have made him make. So how is the Bible true? It is true in all that it says, in the way that it says it, in the context that it says it. You can take that to the bank, build your life on it. You'll never be disappointed. He will never come up short in what he has promised. So Peter brings these two witnesses to remind us of how the Bible is true. And if that's the case, here's the second thing that we need to know to build our life on God's word. God's word brings life. If you look at scripture, if you were to do a word study of God's voice across scripture, most of the time you see God speaking, something amazing happens. Something is brought to life. But this is what the word of God primarily does, is it brings life from death, light into darkness, dead people back into the land of the living, broken lives and relationships. It opens wombs all over the Old Testament. God's word brings life. And from the beginning of time, when he speaks creation into being, till he calls Lazarus to rise from the dead, until the final trumpet sounds and God's voice goes out and all the dead rise, God's voice is a life-giving force in the universe. 
In fact, it's the only source of true life. If you listen to the words of Christ, you will live. But if you don't, you will die. It's as simple as that. God says, my word goes out and it never returns void. It always accomplishes the the task that I've given it. And I love the metaphor in Isaiah 55 that accompanies that. It's like water that goes out into the earth and brings forth life. It's like watering a plant that is parched and you see it immediately begin to perk up. Now this is true in our immediate life, but this is really true in conversions. I was just thinking this week about the conversions of famous Christians that came directly from God's word. Maybe some of you have a story this way too. We typically think of people coming to Christ because of preaching or sharing the gospel. A lot of people come to Christ reading the Bible, hearing the Bible. I think of Charles Spurgeon, who as a teenager went into a church that he'd never been to before. The preacher wasn't even there that week. They had a guest preacher who was just stumbling through this sermon. And the text of the sermon was Isaiah 45, 22. Look to me all the ends of the earth and be saved. And he was. That day he gave his life to the Lord. Martin Luther is the same way. He's reading and teaching through the book of Romans. And he comes across... The theme verse of Romans, which is in Romans 1, 16 and 17, and he catches this little quote from the book of Habakkuk, the righteous shall live by faith. And he lived. Augustine, in the 4th century, was having, if you read the Confessions, it's almost hard to get through how much turmoil he is in before he becomes a Christian. And he is walking one day when he hears a kid's voice say, Take up and read, take up and read, take up and read. And he goes and he finds the scriptures and he reads from Matthew 19, 21. If you would be perfect, go, sell what you have, give it to the poor, and you will have treasure in heaven and come and follow me. And he did. He followed him. The word of God brought life to all of those people. I wonder if you've ever experienced that before, not just in your conversion, but in a situation you've been in when God's word is the thing that brings life. I can remember that in my own story. When I knew that God was calling me to follow him and I didn't want to, what happened was God's word came into my mind. A verse that I had memorized as a kid and then as a 17-year-old, if anybody wants to save his life, he has to lose it. For whoever loses his life for my sake will find it. And what good is it for a person if they gain the whole world but forfeit their soul? That was the verse that brought me to following Christ. I can think of another time, too. When I, I think I've told some of you this story before, but when I was first in ministry, I had a person that I knew at our church who had had cancer, and we had greeted together, and her husband was in my men's Bible study, and so we knew each other fairly well. And her husband came up to me after men's Bible study one day and said, hey, my wife really wants you to come visit her at our house before she dies. And so I said, of course, I'll, I'll be there. And I was so nervous going over there. I mean, think of, I mean, just, I didn't know what I was going to say. I didn't know what I was going to do. I just knew the consequences of not going are definitely worse than going and not knowing what to say, so I better go. But I, I was just praying for God to tell me, what should I do when I go in here? And I get in, and he had told me, bring a Bible. That was great advice. So I brought my Bible, and I go in, and we begin to talk, and I mean, I am almost shaking because I don't, you don't want to mess this up, right? This is like the very last moments of somebody's life. And she said, here's what I want you to do. 
I just want you to start at the beginning of the Bible, and I want you to go through, and I want you to read every passage that you can think of that has to do with heaven. And so I started in the index, you know, and I was looking for scriptures that had heaven in it, and I was going through, and I was just reading this, and over maybe 45 minutes, we were just reading these verses together. And when we got done, we sang together, and she said, now I'm prepared to get there. She wanted God's word because she knew that my platitudes were not going to prepare her to get there. My cleverness and pastoral touch, that was not what she needed. She needed God's word to assure her of what it was going to be like when she got there. And when she passed away a couple of days later, I have no doubt that when she got there, she realized everything God said was true. And in fact, maybe he undersold some of this because it's more than we can imagine. It's more than he can describe It's 100% true. His word brings life. Here's the third thing. God's word is useful. God's word is useful. Now, sometimes you have really strong reactions to this, where you have, like if you go into Mardell and you look at the section of Bibles, and these Bibles are marketed to be useful. You know, you've got like the Busy Dad of Three's Hunting Bible and all of these like applications, and you hear people really react against that by saying, God's word is not to be used as just a guidebook or life suggestions or something like that. And then you've got people being like, well, actually, it's the field guide to life, and these groups don't get along very well. And I just want to point out that God's word is useful because it's true, not the other way around. We live in a very pragmatic world where what is useful is true. God's word is useful because it's true. So actually, both of those things are true, but they have to be in the right order. God's word is true because it reveals himself to us, and it's useful because he made you. It's not just good life advice. It is the way that you were designed to function. That's why God's word is useful. It is true. It is a guide to us because God knows how we were designed to function. I was on a call with a couple of pastors a few weeks ago, and one of the guys was talking about this Barna state of the Bible. So every year, Barna is a research group. They put out some research on the state of the Bible in America. And in the 2021 state of the Bible, I was very encouraged to find out that Bible reading and Bible engagement is actually going up in America which I would not have guessed because almost always the PR is bad. You know, things are getting worse, less Christians, churches are shrinking. But Bible engagement is actually going up, and it has gone up drastically during COVID. So in the last two and a half years or two years and some change, it has gone up dramatically. And one of the things that this guy shared was the biggest obstacles that people have to reading their Bible is, I don't know where to start, I don't understand the language, and I don't have enough time. Those were the three things. And I think we can probably all resonate with all of those. I have a seminary degree, and I still feel like that sometimes in the Bible. It's daunting to read your Bible. But what he said was, I thought was so encouraging, he says, remind your people of the rule of four. Here's the rule of four. Four times in Scripture every week does the following things. This is from Barna's research. If you're in the Bible four times a week, spiritual stagnation is cut by 60%. So people that basically, and this is, this is not a recommendation based on an idea, this is polling data that people who spend four times in God's word every week, 60% less report, I just feel like I'm stuck spiritually. Twice as likely to say no to temptation. This is an amazing stat. Twice as likely to say no 
to temptation. Two and a half times as likely to share your testimony, three times as likely to disciple someone. The rule of four is four times a week in God's word begins to show us that when you align your life with how God designed you, you begin to see the things that God has promised. And if you're struggling with that, get on a reading plan. I used to be so down on reading plans because I thought it's just too structured. It's too, it doesn't seem like that's very spiritual to have a plan you know, that you work with. And that, that'll give you an insight into my personality. I just thought anything that is that rigid cannot be of God. And then I really started working through a Bible reading plan. You realize that God works through structure and planning and consistency. And if you want to work through a Bible reading plan, here's part of the rule of four. If you'll read four chapters a day and a psalm five days a week, you'll get through the Bible in a year. Four chapters a day, every weekday, and a psalm, you're through the Bible in a year. But if that's too big to bite off, which a lot of times it is, I don't usually plan a year in advance, start in Matthew. Read a chapter every day for a month, 28 chapters, one month. And then, if you want to tie the Bible together, go back through the book of Matthew, and one of the things that he does better than anyone is he shows you how the whole Bible fits together. There are 36 direct quotations from the Old Testament in Matthew, and they are usually in your Bible, they are set out by themselves, and there's a little... Uh, superscript that will tell you where it's from. And on your second time through, just go back and read the passage that Matthew quotes. And what you'll find is you'll see how the book of Genesis and Psalms and Deuteronomy and Isaiah and Zechariah all point towards what Christ is doing. And however you do it, you have a better plan than that. However you do it, what you realize when you spend time in God's Word is because it is true, it is useful in your life. If you want to grow, Spend time in God's word. Read it daily. Read a psalm at your dinner table. It's important that your kids know scripture. So whether they can read or not, or you can repeat a verse to them or not, or whether you find great scripture songs on Spotify or YouTube and learn those together, it's important that you and your family spend time in God's word every day. Every day, regularly, as part of your diet, it should be going to God's word, reading it together. So here's the last thing. God's word never fails. This is what Peter wants to remind these people of. In, in this passage, he says, you would do well to pay attention because it's like a light shining in a dark place. And that light just gets brighter and brighter and brighter. And the image he gives is like the morning star coming up across the horizon. It's like what God's word does is it's pointing to the fact that it's dark now, but it's going to be light. And when it's day, everything will be revealed. God's word never fails. We know this because if you read the Bible, you hear things like, the flower fades, the grass withers, but the word of the Lord stands forever. Jesus says, heaven and earth will pass away, but my words will never pass away. The game plan of the Bible is not just now, it's not just for your life, it is an account of how everything goes until the end. How everything goes until Christ returns, until we're on the new heavens and the new earth, and we're worshiping God perfectly, that is what God's word is designed to point you towards. It's like a morning star after a dark night that signals that light is coming. The word of the Lord never fails. So I want to go back as we end here and Mars and Josh come back up, I want to go back to this quote at the coronation of the queen. And I want us to just think about this in terms of 
God's Word. Here is a book, the most valuable thing the world affords. Here is wisdom. Here is the royal law. These are the lively oracles of God. The Bible is God's true word, and it's worth building your life on. Let me pray. Father, thank you that you didn't leave us just to try to figure out what you wanted. You told us, and you gave us an account of what you came to do and how the world's going to progress and what's going to happen in the end. Father, thank you that in every situation we start with your word, that it is true, it is trustworthy, it is life-giving. Father, thank you that your word is perfectly designed for our hearts. And so, Father, even this morning as we talk about your word, would you draw us to your word? Would you help your word to come to us when we need it? Lord, by your spirit, remind us what is true. Bring to mind things that we don't even remember memorizing right when we need them. And Father, above all, we thank you that your word points to your son, gives us the knowledge that he died, he suffered and died and rose, and he's coming back again. And that is our hope, Lord. In Jesus' name we pray.